All right. So this morning, like I was saying a little bit, a little bit ago, we're now stepping out of the birth narratives. We've seen kind of a lot of things going on at the beginning portion of our series here in Luke. A lot of promises made, a lot of promises fulfilled in God that the, the Lord promised to Zechariah, made a promise to uh, Mary that particular things were going to happen and that they were fulfilled. That God had fulfilled all that He said He was going to do in both the lives of Zechariah and in Mary. We got to see the glory of the Lord in the actual births of each of those stories. So we're now making our way out of the birth narratives and into the lives and ministry of both Jesus and John. Now as we go from this portion all the way to the moment whenever Jesus goes into Jerusalem, we're going to see all of the works that Jesus had done with some sprinkling of John the Baptist in there as well. So Luke doesn't forget. He doesn't start the story with two of them and just forget John now that Jesus is here. We're going to see both of them throughout Luke until John is eventually martyred. But we're making our way out of the birth narratives and now into the lives and ministry of Jesus. Now, there's an interesting bridge that we're going to see this morning. Rather than the narrator, or rather than Luke, who is penning this particular gospel account, rather than him jumping straight to Simeon, he has three verses in there that he stuck in there that we're going to spend some time on this morning. There's very interesting perspectives, very interesting reasons why Luke put those three verses in there before we jump into the account of Simeon. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So let's dive into our text. I hope you have your Bibles, because uh, if you know that I'm talking, we're going to go through a lot of it. So I hope you have your Bibles, and just as a pre-warning, we're going to be spending time in Luke and in Romans. So if you have those cool ribbons in your Bible, go ahead and throw a ribbon in Romans, as we will be spending time in uh, you'll also find that this morning I'm not going to be putting all of the scriptures up on the screen. Because I want you guys to read with me in your scriptures this morning. So, with that being said, let's dive into our text this morning. Luke 2, starting in verse 21. Luke 2, starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That means separated, specifically designated for the Lord. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves. Or two young pigeons. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now, as you may immediately see, very intriguing, three verses. Because what we're going to be talking about next week, Pastor Blake will be preaching on next week, is the account of Simeon. And it's an incredible account. That God made a promise and then fulfilled that promise. And he, Simeon, got to observe the fulfillment of that promise. But there's those three verses there. There's those three verses there. So, we're going to talk about what it means in regards to why it is that Jesus was circumcised, named on the eighth day, and why he was separated or consecrated for the Lord. These are all three covenantal terms. And there is a very specific reason that Luke wrote these in here. There's a very specific reason that Luke wrote these in here. 
So Jesus was named after his circumcision, as was custom in the tr Jewish tradition. This name is a covenantal name. And we'll talk about that later. We're going to find that in Genesis 17. This is a covenantal name. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, or Joshua in English. The current name that we have for Jesus comes from the Greek form of Jesus' name, Iesus, because there's no J sound in Greek. So it's Iesus. And you get to where we're at today, his name's Jesus. Why we didn't say Joshua? I don't know. But Jesus is the term that we use when you see in your English Bibles. It comes from the Greek word Iesus, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. Now, this name is very specific. This name means God's salvation or God's saving call. How fitting a name. How fitting a name that the people who had been praying for this deliverance, for this salvation for over 400 years in Israel, receives God's salvation call. And his name is Jesus, or Joshua, Yeshua. Now it's very intriguing that the word, the Hebrew word Yeshua, is used. That his name is Yeshua. Because do you know what Joshua did in the Old Testament? What was kind of his role? His job was to carry the people of God from the wilderness into the promised land. His role as God's salvation call was to fulfill the promises made by God that he would take the people of God into the promised land. Now, in this story regarding Joshua, and you'll read this in Joshua, it's very intriguing because there's a particular river that separated the people of God from the promised land over at Canaan. Does anybody name what that river is? 20 points, if you can get it. It's Jordan. Jordan. Nailed it. It's the Jordan River. Great job, Dan. 20 points. It's the Jordan River. Why is that significant? Well, it's just a typical river. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. I heard somebody whispering. Jesus was baptized there. But what is significant about the Jordan River? Now, you'll find this intriguing because in the story of Joshua, the river was running so fast that the people couldn't get over. So it required God stopping the river, dry land, for them to walk and cross over into the promised land. Now, what's awesome about this situation is that whenever the, the narrative is, is described in Joshua, it says the rough water started at Adam. Can anybody tell me where the Jordan River ends? The Dead Sea. Starts in Adam, ends in the Dead Sea. The waters are so bad that you get swept away every time you try to cross on your own. So it required the Lord stopping the water for the people to even cross over into the promised land. And Joshua was the one who led the way for that people. I just thought that was a fun fact. So if you guys are in Bible trivia, you're like, hey, you know what? From Adam to the Dead Sea, it took God to cross people over. It's cool. Very cool. But the, the name Joshua connotes that image. Connotes that image that God... That Jesus is going to be the one who carries the people. He will be the salvation by which the people of God will be carried from wilderness, which we are in, living right now, into the promised land, into the kingdom, into the eternal kingdom. 
So that's why this name is so imperative. So if somebody tells you that Jesus Christ, that Christ is Jesus' last name, you're like, bro, no it's not. Christ means anointed one. And Jesus is naming God instead of the saving call. So it's, yeah, don't let people tell you that Christ is the last name. That's bunkus. So, one of the interesting things that happens during this time, and we're going to find out in Genesis 17, is that on the eighth day, a very specific tradition happens in Jewish tradition, Jewish culture. As a matter of fact, it's a commandment of the Lord, that on the eighth day, all males are to go and become circumcised, and they receive a name. And if you're a firstborn male, you are consecrated to the work of the Lord. And all of this is found in three verses in Luke. So why would Luke put it there? We know that Luke doesn't waste words. Why would Luke put it there? Because I think he wants to draw our attention to what it means in regards to circumcision in this covenantal situation. What does it mean that Jesus was circumcised? What does it mean that he was given his name? What does it mean that he was consecrated for the Lord? And what does that mean for us? Why would Luke include that? To tell Theophilus that Jesus was circumcised. That seems kind of personal. But there's a very specific reason why Luke wrote this, and we're going to find that out today. So, the main thing we're going to be talking about today is circumcision. But circumcision has been confusing and convoluted over the years. It still exists to this day, but the meaning of it has been lost throughout the years. Don't worry, I'm not going to be talking about the scientific element of circumcision. We're going to be talking about where did it come from? What is circumcision? Why was it instituted? And why does it matter for us today? Why was it so important to Paul that he was willing to go to bat at the Jerusalem Council regarding this issue? Why was it so important to him that he would write about it consistently through his letters? To make sure that it was well known what circumcision was and what it meant. It would be one of the reasons why he had pinned the letter to the churches in Galatia. One of the main reasons he writes that letter is in regards to the circumcision. So why, if it was so important to Paul, what does it mean for us? Well, that's what we're going to be looking into today. So this situation in Luke 21 through 24 will lead us into one of the strangest stories of the, books of, of the book of Exodus. Which we'll get to in a moment. But I believe Luke is pointing us to something very important by including such details in these verses. So with the meaning of the name of Jesus, the circumcision, and Him being consecrated to the Lord as the firstborn, remember this term, firstborn, these are all covenantal actions that showcase the fulfillment of covenantal commands of God to the people of God. These were all things that had to be done because the Lord had instituted these things to be done. But there was this very specific reason why Jewish men had to become circumcised. To be a part of the covenant. But wait a second, Freddie. Does that mean Jesus had to be circumcised? I mean, He is the Son of the living God. He's already in covenant relationship with the Father. He already has a name that was given to Him by the Lord. Why is all of this covenantal stuff in here in Luke? What does it have to do with us? So what does that mean for us today? What do things like circumcision and the baptism of Jesus, though it was not required for him because he is the Son of God, who received the love of the Lord forever, which is found in the Davidic covenant, 
that the Davidic king would receive the steadfast Lord of the love, uh, love of the Lord forever, and it would not depart from him. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness? What does that mean? What does circumcision and righteousness have to do with us who are not Jewish? Paul is going to give us some insight into why the topic we are discussing this morning has a great and glorious meaning for us today. So if you turn with me to Romans 4. Turn with me to Romans 4. We're going to go through this chapter together. Romans 4, starting in verse 1. Paul has a lot to say on this topic. And we're going to explore what it is he is saying. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is tied to the fact that Abraham believed. We're all on the same page? Awesome. Verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. What is Paul saying here? All those righteous works that we seek to do are done because God commands it. Those are wages of due. That's what we owe God. This is not a blessing that we receive. This is not a gift. So all that Old Testament, all those works that they had done were trying to lead to peace. That's what Paul is arguing here. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Listen. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Do you know who the lawless ones are? You and I, we're as Gentiles. If you're Jewish in here, uh, that would not be counted as you. But the lawless ones are us Gentiles. Those of us who have not been given the law. And what does David say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What is Paul arguing here? Let's continue on. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the inherent the inherents, sorry, the inherents of the law who are to be the heirs. 
Faith is null and promise is void. So if this is the case, if you and I can simply just get whatever, circumcised or just go through the ceremonial covenantal laws and try to abide, then there's no reason for faith to be involved. If we could attain covenantal faithfulness in the Lord and receive His blessing on our own stead by doing the works perfectly, then faith is not necessary. So why was it counted to Abraham as righteousness because of faith? Let's continue on. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I want you to remember that phrase regarding life to the dead. Verse 18. In hope he believed things that did not exist. I'm sorry. In hope he believed against hope that he should not become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Abraham had absolutely no hope he was about 100 years old. His wife was barren. So when the Lord gave him a promise about being a, a father to a uh, multitude of nations, he had hope against hope. The only thing he had was to believe that God was going to do it at that point. There was absolutely nothing that he could do to make sure that a child comes. There was nothing he could have done. So he had hope against hope. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Thanks, Paul. Since he was about a hundred years old, <laughs> his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it is counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is making a very, very strong argument here in Romans 4. He's making the argument, hey, where does righteousness come from? Where did Abraham get it? By faith. So how is it that by faith that all the covenant promises come? Well, we're going to find out today how it is Jesus fulfilled all the covenant commands, all the covenant demands by which God made necessary for, to fulfill all righteousness. So that by faith, we can abide in Him in all righteousness. Does that make sense? All the works that Christ had done was for your stead. That you were able to abide in Him who came to fulfill all righteousness. And that includes circumcision. Paul is showcasing that in our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled all righteousness for our stead, we have been circumcised because Christ fulfilled it. We are counted as righteous, not because of the works that we do, but because of the works Christ has done. 
If there's anything that you get out of today, this is our main idea. If there's anything that you get out of today, I would like you to walk away with this. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And I said all, specifically. For all who are found in Him by grace through faith. His works and covenant faithfulness allows you to be considered covenant people of God. His works allows you to be covenant people of God. His works, His circumcision, His fulfillment and being consecrated as the firstborn son, His works counted to your righteousness because of your faith in Him. Not because of anything that you've done. So man, I'm basically letting you off the hook. You don't have to go and be circumcised right now. That was a big argument next. We remember? Paul was arguing. Should the Gentiles become circumcised? Many were like, yes. Paul said no. And he makes a lot of arguments in the New Testament on why. And it's a beautiful picture. Because Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness for those who are found in him. So, this is the thought. This is the thought. Spiritual circumcision is the spiritual covenant sign by the Holy Spirit of your inclusion as God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. Through spiritual circumcision, you are cut off from death, you are cut off from the flesh, and you have been cut off from the world. The Lord said in Deuteronomy 30 that He would circumcise your hearts. That this circumcision is not merely about flesh, but He will circumcise your hearts. So we're going to be learning today on circumcision of Jesus Christ, what it means for us that we have been cut off from death, that we have been cut off from the flesh, and that we have been cut off from this world. So number one, separated from death. Number one, separated from death. So what does circumcision have to do with death? Why is it that these two things seem to be tied together? That whenever circumcision is mentioned, death is also mentioned alongside. Where did the commandment for circumcision come from, and why was it instituted? We're going to find this in Genesis 17. So turn with me to Genesis 17. We're going to find out where this circumcision came from. Why is it important? Why did Jesus go through this process? Circumcision. Genesis 17. Starting in verse 1. So was when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And you may multiply greatly. Do you notice his name? What's his name there? Abram. It's not Abraham yet. Abram. Verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout the generations... For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting 
possession, and I will be their God. So a little bit of background before this situation. Do you know what Abram experienced right before this situation? So the Lord had made a covenant with Abram and with Sarai. Only for them to both realize, hey, I'm a little old, you're barren, you're old. Sarai said, you know what, I can't have kids. So take my servant, Hagar. Which Abram gladly does, apparently. Take my servant, Hagar, and they have a child named Ishmael. Now, Sarah and Hagar started having problems with each other. Hagar was floating around being like, oh, look at me, I've got a son. He's the covenant son. Uh, and Sarah, you have nothing. So Sarah sent her away. But notice something. God did not make the covenant with Hagar. He made it with Abram. And we're going to find out here what he has to say regarding where his covenant would come from. Before this entire situation, Abram thought, hey, I'm going to use the means that is available to me to fulfill this promise that God had made to me on my own terms. I'm going to do things that I think that make sense. I mean, that's common sense and logic. My wife's too old to have kids, and she just offered her handmaiden to me. So, yeah, sure, let's do this. So something very intriguing comes about from this mistake. Circumcision. Let's continue in the text. And God said, this is verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Now that word keep there in Hebrew is shamar. It means to guard it. It means it's very important. It's the same word that was given to Adam regarding the garden, that he was to keep it, shamar, keep it. It's important. It's the same word there. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, how old was Jesus when he got circumcised? Eight days old. When he is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. And I love this portion. Because all the way back in Genesis 17, the Lord was thinking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And it wasn't just the people of Israel. Listen here. Whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house, uh, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. To be cut off from the people means to be cut off from the covenant. It means you're not included with these people. You're not included in all those promises. To be cut off from the people means you're not a part of that covenant. 
you don't get to receive the blessings of it. So for you to be cut off from the people in this regard, you are cut off from God. You are completely and utterly separated from God. To be cut off from God is the ultimate death. This is the very situation that happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died that day. Their flesh may have not have gone into the dust, but they died that day. What happened to them? They were kicked out of the garden. Angels were put up to block so they couldn't come back in. They were cut off. They were cut off. Whenever we die in our sin, we are separated, cut off from God for eternity. If we are not circumcised, we are cut off from God. We must be circumcised to be included in the covenant. We're going to talk about what that spiritual circumcision actually is. Why it is important that Christ fulfilled it. But to be cut off is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. That means you were not a part of any of the blessings. You were not a part of any of the promises. The sign that was given was a reminder of the covenant with the Lord. This circumcision to Abraham, this sign was given as a reminder of the covenant with the Lord. And a reminder of the fulfillment of the covenant promises by the Lord alone. Sorry, Abram, you can't just take a handmaid and be like, look, the Lord is faithful. I have done my deed. I have fulfilled the deed. And now I have a son. The Lord said, no, 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 no. That is not how my covenant is going to go about. My covenant is between you and me. And Sarah is going to bear you a son. Sarah is going to bear you a son. This was a reminder to Abraham that it's not going to be on the terms of Abraham by which things are going to get done. But on the fulfillment of the promises that God had made by His power, by His ability, by His righteousness, by His fulfillment. His covenant faithfulness to His promises. His speaking is His doing. Covenant will be fulfilled through the Lord and not through our own efforts. Abraham knows this all too well. Because he got in trouble and he felt the pain literally for his mistake. And so did every male that was a part of the covenant. This covenant is not going to be fulfilled by any measure that a man can do of his own. So now, this leads us to one of the strangest stories in Exodus. And it centers around death and circumcision. Death and circumcision. Now, there's a story in Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, verses 24. I'm sorry, sorry verses 20 through 26. So Moses had just finished with the burning bush, bush situation with the Lord. He just got done speaking with God. God had commissioned Moses that he was going to go into Egypt to deliver the people from Egypt. And that the Lord was going to perform signs and wonders before him. Just finished all that up. And so Moses took his wife and his kids and began making their journey. Now there's a, a two verses where it just breaks in at verse 24 and all of a sudden the Lord has now come to kill Moses. Wait, what? Why is this happening? Go, if you have your Bibles, go there. Exodus chapter 4. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Wait a second, wait a second. God, didn't you just tell Moses that he was going to do all this stuff for you? 
commission him to do all this stuff? Why are you going to kill him? Out of the middle of nowhere, the Lord says, I'm going to go after you, Moses. Here I come to put you to death. Verse 25, Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then it just goes on to talk about the Lord speaking to Aaron. What is this story? God just finishes with Moses and says, Hey, you're going to do some awesome stuff. And my people are going to be delivered out of Egypt. They're going to go and freely worship me. They're going to abide by faith. There's going to be blood on doorposts. Wonderful works of magnificence. And then out of nowhere, the Lord comes to kill Moses at a lodging place. And the only thing that kept him from not happening is his wife circumcising their son. Seems odd. This is why it's important in regards to death and circumcision. Moses was the mediator by which God's work was going to be done for the people, the covenant people, the deliverance. It would require his absolute obedience to do this. It would require him to be able to foretell and both do and to proclaim that which the Lord is going to do. So before he ever steps into Egypt, that is put to the test. Because his son wasn't circumcised. Now scholars say it's probably because he went with a Midian situation, which they didn't circumcise until like 12 or something like that. But the point was is that the Lord came for Moses' life because Moses was not willing to abide by the commandments of the Lord from the beginning. And he had to make sure that Moses was on board before he ever even stepped foot in Egypt. So he came to bring death to Moses and it was surrounding circumcision. So Moses was not guarding the everlasting covenant. Moses had been given the commandments of the Lord to lead people from Egypt into the wilderness to worship God. He was held responsible to ensure that the covenant was maintained. Death was coming to him who would be the mediator between God and his people. Circumcision must be upheld for not adhering to the covenant command. Death was coming for Moses. If circumcision was a sign of faith and covenant was not obeyed, how is the sign of deliverance from death by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost be believed and obeyed? If he couldn't make sure that he got that thing right, how in the world is he going to make sure that he's going to declare and do what he's supposed to do regarding the salvation of the people? It had to be established that Moses, as a mediator, had to be absolutely perfect in covenant fulfillment. Jesus also, as our mediator, is perfect in his covenant fulfillment. Jesus did not have to get circumcised for the sake of covenant with his Father. But he did it to ensure that you and I are in covenant fulfillment in all righteousness. So if circumcision was that sign of faith, Christ fulfilled it so that you can have the faith to believe in it. He not only fulfilled it himself, but he declared it to you too. To deliver you from death and enslavement. To deliver you from Egypt. He is the mediator by which your salvation comes. 
he not only fulfilled it in his own flesh, but he also fulfilled it in declaring it, declaring it to the people. Therefore, the mediator must obey the covenant righteousness and circumcision and ensure that the covenant sign is placed upon those who would be delivered from death. Paul again talks about this and explains this in Romans 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that the one man Jesus abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who both abided in covenant fulfillment and declared it for your deliverance. Death reigns in all of this. We have been cut off because of sin. We have been cut off from the Lord because of sin. We are born in iniquity, as David says. We're going to find out later in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are cut off. Our hearts must be circumcised. We need more than just a physical circumcision here. We need one who is a mediator who both fulfills the commands on our stead and provides it. The reason Jesus got circumcised is so that you didn't have to. He fulfilled all of that righteousness so that you become the circumcision. That you become that cut off from death. You are no longer cut off from God but reconciled back to Him. You are cut off from death. Death is gone from you if you're in Christ Jesus. He fulfilled all of that so that way you can have the life and have it eternal. So if death has been dealt with, why still live like death resides in you? Those who have been delivered from Egypt rejoiced in their deliverance. Not because they escaped death, but through the power of God, death has passed over them by faith. And through the works of God, the people were delivered to worship Him. Do you live like death? One separated from God, or do you live in the joy of having life to freely worship Him by faith? Are you more marked by Egypt or by the blood of the Lamb? This circumcision that Christ did for you and that He took to Calvary was to secure you from the law of sin and death, so that you would may have life in Him. He both fulfilled it and declared it for you. Romans 8 says it like this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You and I cannot submit to God on our own stead. 
In flesh, we cannot do it. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Circumcision has to happen in our lives. We have to be cut off from death. And we're going to find out here in a moment why our circumcision in the flesh causes us to be cut off from the flesh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if, the, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Why set your mind on the things of death. Why set your mind on the things of the flesh? Do you not know that death resides in your flesh? You are in the Spirit, therefore put to death the flesh and walk alive in the Spirit. You are not working towards peace like the Old Covenant. Your life is bearing fruit because of the Prince of Peace who has made you the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, five. Because of Christ Jesus, you have been made the righteousness of God. You are no longer bound in death, separation from God because of unrighteous, unrighteousness. You have been made alive in Christ with eternal life in communion with God. Number two. Number two. We are separated from the flesh. Separated from the flesh. The reason you are bound in death, cut off from God, is because of sin. The law of sin and death is sure. James says it this way, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. I love that the word there used is conceived. Because the desire starts as a seed, doesn't it? It's an idea that pops into the mind. Regarding sin. That's where it starts. It's a desire to want to do something. And then whenever you allow it in, when you allow that temptation, that thought to come in, it begins to grow. And all of a sudden it starts making evidence in your life. Other people can see it. You may not be able to see it. But other people can see the evidence of that temptation of sin. Because it is conceived in your life. Listen to the rest of the text. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You've given birth to this sin. And now it brings death to you. James has put it this way. Sin dwells in you because of your sinful desire. No man should ever say, oh, I'm tempted of God. And let's get past this bunkus that... The devil made me do it. The devil is simply an, an adversary to try to get you to do things. The devil didn't make you do it. He used what is already there to get you to do it. So if you have an issue with pornography, if you have an issue with drinking, if you have an issue with anger, if you have an issue with any other sin, he's going to use what's there to try to conceive that sin in your life. That desire is going to hit you, and you can reject it because of Christ Jesus. But if you receive it and it conceives itself, 
it starts bearing fruit in your life. You start making itself evident. And then whenever it's fully realized, it brings death to you. The reason that death is sure is that sin must be dealt with. Our just and holy God will deal with sin once and for all. But sin dwells in our members, as Paul states. Listen to Paul whenever he describes sin, the law of sin and death in our flesh. Romans 7. In the time, I'm just going to summarize. Paul is in this struggle. He recognizes that there is something going on within his members. Within his members. He's stalking specifically in his hands, feet, eyes, ears, anything that is a part of his body. That his flesh desires to do bad things. He says, you know what? I do not do the things I want to do, but do the things I'm very, I don't want to do. Why is that? Because sin dwells in my members, seeking an opportunity to make itself known. Then he asks the question at the very end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Who can do this? Well, Christ Jesus did. Beginning of chapter 8. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's work. So Paul begins with this thing. I recognize that there is a war going on between my mind and heart. And sin making itself apparent in my life. In my members seeking an opportunity. For there is only one reason that we are no longer bound by the law of sin and death in our flesh. Because we were born of the Spirit because of Christ. It was because of Christ's righteousness in whom we have faith that the righteous requirement was made. Where are you this morning? Do you think that you are trapped in a sin that keeps, you pull, uh, keeps pulling you down? Do you feel like Paul this morning? I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do I keep on doing. Do you feel like the wretched man or woman as Paul described himself? Do you resonate with Paul's cry to the Lord this morning? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Is that you this morning? Do you feel like you're in such a place that you seem trapped? Do you feel like you can't just get past this thing? Just one more drink. Just one more website. Just one more relationship. You can't get past it for some reason. So you this morning. Lord, I don't know why I do this. But I don't want to do it anymore. Is that you this morning? I don't do the things I want to do, but the things I don't want to do, I actually do. Lord, help me. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Sin no longer has a hold on you. You are no longer its slave. The flesh has been put to death in Christ Jesus. If you are found in Him, Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for our sake, that we no longer abound by that once, which once enslaved our actions. Christ has condemned sin in the flesh. So now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 7 says. That Christ condemned sin in the flesh. That he took sin to Calvary for your stead. Since he had condemned sin, there is now no condemnation for you. 
He fulfilled all righteousness so that way you are free from condemnation because he took it. So that sin doesn't have any hold on you anymore. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry is what the text says. But I want you to fill in that last word. What is it you need to flee from this morning? That word flee there doesn't mean to be like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'll try better next time. No, it means to run. It means to get away from it. You have that ability now in Christ Jesus. That no longer has a hold on you. And the Lord will never allow you to be tempted beyond anything that's even beyond that which is common to man. Which means you have an escape for everything you are going through in your life. How often do we not flee from the very thing that's causing us to sin? If you have a problem with pornography, try keeping your laptop out in the open where everyone can see it. How about not taking your phone in private places? How about leaving your smartphone at the door? Flee from it. Don't just deal with it. Well, I'm trying my best. No, you're not. Are you fleeing? How often are we placing things in front of our kids that they actually have to flee from because of us? How often are we taking devices that we're like, here, here you go. Have free access to everything that you could possibly imagine. And then we wonder whenever they get in trouble with it. Whenever they're the ones ensnared in pornography, when they're the ones ensnared in this, you know, narcissistic viewpoint of the world, needing to be fed by others, we're the ones who gave them the tool in the first place. Fleeing doesn't just mean saying, you know what, I'm sorry. Fleeing means getting out of it. If that means you've got to get off Facebook, get off Facebook. If that means you don't allow Disney in your house, don't allow Disney in your house. Jesus said it this way, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He didn't say to physically do. Do you understand what the meaning is? If there's a problem here, get it out. You were once enslaved to it. Before Christ Jesus, you had no control over it. You were just indulge in sin, indulge in sin, indulge in sin. Because you loved it. But now that you're in Christ Jesus, you are no longer slave to it. You actually can flee. So flee. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That means removing whatever it is in your life that is causing you to sin. Remove it. In the same way that the flesh has been cut off in circumcision, circumcision, your flesh has been cut off from the Spirit. You are dead in the flesh, but alive in the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. You now have the power to walk in the Spirit because of Christ. Galatians 5, 16-25. I'll read it quickly. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There is war going on in you, Christian. How often are you giving the enemy the tools for your own demise? 
Remember, the devil doesn't make you do anything. He just uses what's already there. So guess what? If you've got a desire for something, you're just handing him the weapons and saying, please hurt me by not getting it out of your life. Continuing on. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Do you notice that he said dissensions and divisions in the same group as sexual immorality? Just some food for thought. Continuing on. I warn you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're not covenant people. They're not doing covenant things. They're bound by the flesh. They're going to do what the flesh desires for them to do. But listen. Continuing on. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you notice the two words here in the text? Do you notice when he says the works of the flesh and the fruit of of the Spirit. The works of the flesh is from somebody who's doing the work. The fruits of the Spirit is somebody who's done the work already. The fruit in your life is because somebody else did the work so that you now bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Do you know who did that work? Somebody. Witness. Who did the work? Christ Jesus did the work. I am the vine. You are the branches. So you can flee. You can walk in the Spirit. You're no longer bound by the flesh anymore. Christ has done the works of righteousness. He has fulfilled that all that was required. That is the gospel. Christ has done what we could never do. And now He can produce fruit in a life where we're there, in a life where He has done the work already. We simply bear the fruit of the Spirit because of the work He has done. He is the vine and we are the branches. You are no longer bound to the flesh but alive in the Spirit because of the fulfilling works of Christ. And number three, separated from the world. Separated from the world. You have been set apart from this world. You are no longer a son or daughter of this world but of the kingdom of God. Christ died, was buried, and arose in victory over death. The world hated him. John says it this way in chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that we may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The world loves the darkness, but we are children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5. 
as Jesus stated, if they hated me, they will hate you. We are not children of this world. We have been set apart, circumcised from this world, no longer bound to the fate of the world. Paul articulates this wonderfully in, in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2. I told you, we're going to talk about Ephesians 2 a lot. I'm sure we're going to be memorizing it by the time I'm done. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Oh, we're coming full circle, aren't we? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Death, flesh, the world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? This world is not your fate. This world is not your hope. Continuing on. So that in the coming ages he, may, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that way no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, see, told you we're coming full circle, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, circumcision, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This chapter brings full circle what we were just talking about. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You followed the passions of the flesh and the desire that dwells among you. And you, like all the rest of the world, followed the same line of faith, faith, that death was coming to you. But God, rich in mercy, by grace you have been saved. You were once the uncircumcision, you and I. We were once cut off from Christ, but we are no longer cut off from Christ. Because Christ was circumcised for you. He didn't have to be circumcised. But He did it so that way you could be included. You are the circumcision, Paul says. If you're in Christ Jesus. So we have come full circle in this text. Because of the circumcision of Christ Jesus, 
we now abide as circumcised covenant people who have been reconciled to God because of the faith in the one who fulfilled all righteousness. Did Jesus have to get circumcised? Yes, so that all who are circumcised and uncircumcised would become the covenant people of God through his perfect fulfilling work. You are no longer bound to death, but death has been cut off from you and now life abides in you. You no longer are bound by the law of sin and death because of the flesh, because you have died to the flesh in Christ Jesus who condemned sin in the flesh for you. You are no longer bound to the outcome of this world, and now you are a child. You are nor a child of this world, but a child of God. These are the three takeaways that I would like us to take away this morning. Christ's circumcision means three things. One, death is no longer bound to you. That has been cut off. The flesh has been cut off. The law of sin and death has been cut off. Two, your flesh does not rule over you. Christ condemned sin in the flesh at the cross. So that way you are no longer bound by it. But now you are free to walk in the Spirit, bearing fruit. Three, the world is not your fate, nor your hope. The world hated Christ and killed Him. Because the world loved darkness and hated the light. This is not your hope. This world has no appeal to you. And it shouldn't. So today, Christ's circumcision means a lot more than just simply a Jewish tradition. There's a lot more to circumcision, Christ being circumcised for yours and mine, inclusion into the covenant. That even though we're considered the uncircumcised, we're included in God's covenant blessings for eternity in Christ Jesus. Simply by faith. Simply by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful of your covenant faithfulness that you have included even the small details of your word and fulfilled those small things so that way we get to participate as covenant people that you have called us by name in Christ Jesus that we have been cleansed. That we are no longer bound in death but have eternal life in Christ Jesus. That we no longer have the bondage of the flesh any longer that will rule over us. But you have given us freedom in Christ Jesus because the flesh has been circumcised. We are so thankful that you have done all the work that we now get to bear fruit because of your work. That we're no longer workers of iniquity. We're no longer workers of disobedience. We're no longer workers of this world. But we get to bear fruit because of the works that Christ has done. That we just simply get to walk in them. And bear fruit in our lives. Because of the work that you have done. Heavenly Father, may we see your faithfulness for all that it is. That you paid it all. You did it all. And that we simply just abide in you by faith. And now we get to go and do good works. We're covenant people. No longer bound to death. No longer bound to our flesh. No longer bound to this world. All because of Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray this morning. Amen.